Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bible's open there to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be in the verses that Will just read for us and pray that we would worship over this morning, verses 15 through 21, as we uh, dive in this morning. Well, can I also give my warm greetings and welcome and, uh, and say good morning. Awesome. Grateful for you guys. I'm very thankful for you. And as we look for a uh, time with Thanksgiving, I know there can be, uh, you might have positive things surrounding uh, your plans for Thanksgiving or negative things surrounding your plans for Thanksgiving. There might be drama within the context of your, of your home, and there might be great peace in the context of your home. Um, there could be sadness and mourning this Thanksgiving, or there could be great joy in the context of this Thanksgiving. But here's what we know the Bible would say. The Bible would say we should rejoice always and that we should be have thankful hearts. And so uh, as I was sharing just devotionally this week with my own children, uh, may God help us with this little illustration that is for the picture for us is that we would be salt and light. We would be agents of preservation as far as the, the, the kingdom of God and its purposes as, as far as salt would be. Uh, be more palatable as far as uh, as far as how it's digested and things that would be put with salt and how it makes things more pleasant. Uh, but then also we're supposed to be light. We're supposed to be able to expose things. And so I say that simply to be able to say the illustration, if you look at salt light, would be that we should be therm- thermostats and not thermometers. And so you can come into a cold situation. You can come into a difficult situation and simply just... Embrace that environment as a thermometer would, or you could come in and be a thermostat and begin to liven things up and begin to bring in the light and the salt of Christ uh, to those that we, the Bible would say in the book of Colossians, our speech should be seasoned with salt. And so I would encourage you this Thanksgiving, um, uh, may we be uh, instruments of God and may we be a thankful people. And that's one thing that you that you can see pretty quickly just out in, in, in the public venue is that those who are thankful and those who are not. And so we of all people should be the most thankful. And it's because of the topic we're going to be studying this morning. So I'm going to first admit right up front, um, even laying out the outline, it looks really different than the way I normally do. I always have blanks that you have to fill in everywhere, and there's not really that many blanks to fill in today. And so I'm not doing that because you're lazy uh, or that you've quit filling out the blanks. I simply do that because... Uh, just the context of how I wanted to explain this, I know it's a little bit more technical. I don't want to say theological or even uh, biblical because we've been studying the Bible, and it is about theology. And so I want to simply to say uh, the terms that we would use today in today's message are biblical first and foremost. The word justification seems like a pretty fancy word. And, I, and I'll say this to simply to communicate that it's a biblical word. It's in the Bible. It's found in Scripture, like words like propitiation. And so they're in the Bible. We should use them, and they should be in our vocabulary. But they're not oftentimes used in our regular, ongoing vocabulary. We want to try to make things simple, but sometimes we miss the meanings behind words. And so I want to try to make sure that we elevate the word and what it means and what's taking place because the word is so important. And so let me just walk through. So our theme this morning is justification by grace through faith. Justification by grace through faith. Let me share why this word and this passage 
Uh, and then what's going to take place remain, following this passage this is at the end of chapter 2, and then we're going to begin in chapters 3 and 4. Just so you know, these letters, these epistles that were written didn't have uh, scripture verses and chapters, right? Didn't have chapter divisions and verses in them when they sent them to the churches. It was simply a letter. And so in our, in our thinking this morning, I want us to say, yes, this all flows together. And even though we've broken it up to try to aid and in, in teaching it and communicating it. I want to make sure that we're thinking through this. It's, it's this one seamless thought that Paul is walking through, this one letter, this one message that Paul wants to communicate. But if you can begin to break them down. If we begin to break them down, chapters 1 and 2 were more personal about Paul, his authority, his calling, and what's taking place there in the churches of Galatia that he's, he's combating. Uh, chapter 3 and 4 is going to be more theological, where it's more personal. It's going to be more theological about the gospel and, and clarifying the gospel and what is a biblical salvation versus what's not. And then the last is going to be more practical. For chapters 5 and 6 will be more practical. And so uh, this is going to be the moving from personal to very theological, and so I want us to, to dive in. But as we teach this, it needs so important for us because here is... Uh, the, the crux of this message and why it's important for us and for those that we will take this message to when we leave this place. We're the church gathered now. We will be the church scattered uh, just in a brief few moments uh, as we leave this place, as we go uh, um, over the hills and through the woods to grandmother's house, right? And so as we make our way out, man, we need to carry the gospel to those that we're going to be sharing. And this passage is so important. And so it, it asks this question, what must happen or what must I do in order to receive the grace and the favor of God. Another way to phrase it is, in order for me to be have peace with God and, and enter into heaven, what needs to happen? So sometimes we've had uh, a variety of membership interviews, and even this morning there will be a new family that will be presented at the close of our service. And uh, we'll ask kind of this theological question that, really isn't a question that's going to be posed at the end of time. So we've all heard it. And if we were to stand before God, he says, why should I allow you into my heaven? How would you answer? Now, that's not going to happen. If you're standing before God, you, it's already been decided where you're going to be spending eternity, whether in heaven or hell. And so uh, at least you'd be mistaken or others that we deeply love. And, and there's no holding pattern. There's no place where they're going to be able to earn righteousness after death. You don't, if it's not taken care of this side of heaven, this question that we pose simply to get to the heart of what people understand about justification, the heart of what people believe about the Bible, it's simply that. It's just a question to illustrate their heart. This question will not be posed to you in order to aid you, that, to aid you into entering into God's kingdom. Either are or you're not by that point. But we will ask this question, like I said, to simply target the heart and, and allow us to understand where the person that we're talking to uh, what they understand about justification. And so this, this passage is so important, not just the argument that Paul's making there, but that it's finally reached us 2,000 years later that we can have confidence in what the Word of God says. And so if you really want to know where somebody's at, and I'm going to give you a biblical answer to that very question, why should I allow you, if God was speaking to us, and we're, we're, I've already deceased and we're about to... Uh, to either be separated from God forever in a place called hell or be allowed to enter into his presence in a place called heaven with him to enjoy his glory forever. And the question was posed, why should I allow you into my heaven? This is the question that Paul is going to answer this morning.
So when I, when we, I know we're using biblical terms, technical terms that we might not throw around all the time. I don't want you checking out because you're like, oh, this is one of those weighty messages. Stay engaged is what I'm saying. All right, so here's, here's where we're at. So what's, first of all, walk through. We're going to go through three major points. The def, definition of justification. We're going to define it. We're going to look at the clarification of how someone is justified before God. So we're going to clarify what justification looks like. And then we're going to explain justification or the explanation of justification at work in the life of Paul. So in just these short verses, Paul is going to walk us through some of these things. And so I wanted to start with the actual definition of justification. So if you have your notes, pull those out. They're going to aid us in our time. You can write notes on top of these notes. Clearly, it's not exhaustive, the notes I give you. And so feel free to add notes uh, to the notes that are already given. So let's look at this term. What does justification mean? What is it? First of all, it's a legal term used by a judge. To declare an accused person not guilty. Legal term. Innocent or guilty. And this is the declaring that the person who has been accused is not guilty. And so the opposite of justification, senior notes, righteous and innocent. So that's what we're being declared when you're declared justified or justification is you're being declared righteous and innocent is the opposite then. The opposite of justification is condemnation, which means that you are guilty and condemned. If you want to get a good clarification, we use the word condemnation far more than we use the word justification in our ongoing everyday language. And so if you want to see what justification means, it means the exact opposite of condemnation. Right? And so where before Peter stood condemned, right? It is now st- it would not be condemned. It'd be a person would be justified. And so what does it mean? Your next point there is God legally then, as the just judge of all creation, God legally then declares a sinner righteous and guiltless before him. God legally declares a sinner righteous and guiltless before him. If you, you'll see that spelled out in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. It's already put in your notes, so you don't have to turn there. Just listen along as I read this to you. It speaks of this legal declaration of justification. And Paul writes there to the church in Rome, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because, of, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was, is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many." And the free gift is not like the, is not the result like the result of that one man's sin, for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So that one sin brought condemnation to all, but yet even despite the fact that many had trespassed, God brought through this free gift justification. He declared us righteous when we were not. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So it's saying, listen, God can legally declare you innocent if we are found in Jesus Christ. Now we know that. But the way this plays out, and we're going to walk through in just a few moments, it gets really muddied. The waters get unclear because we allow the world to begin to speak to us and not the Bible speak to us. 
And I want to try to point some of this out as we go on through our time together. So I want to just kind of continue to define this. So God legally declares a sinner righteous and guiltless before him is what the word justification means uh, to us. Number three, God freely and graciously then declares the sinner righteous on the basis of his own work, God's own work, and not based upon the work or merit of the person themselves. All right, so God freely and graciously declares the sinner, right, the one who's broken God's law, who isn't righteous in and of himself, he declares that sinner righteous on the basis of God's own work and not based upon the work or merit of the person. God is the one who is pursuing, forgiving, pardoning, restoring, and accepting the sinner because of his great love, mercy, and kindness. Who's the one doing the work then? Talk to me. God. You see this throughout all of Scripture. God's the one who created everything. God's the one who's interacting with us. And even after we sinned and God separated us, it was an act of love and kindness and mercy. Because if they had eaten of the tree of, of, of life, then ultimately they would have been forever in a state of sin. But God spared us, right? Kicked them, expelled them from the garden, and then God made a way to pursue mankind again. Was Abraham looking for, or Abram, before his name was changed to Abraham, looking for God, or did God come looking for Abram? Talk to me. God did. Was Moses looking for God, or did God come looking for Moses? God. See this this morning. Do not allow our, our desire for autonomy, our desire for uh, our American rights, and I'm glad to be an American. I'm glad for the freedom we have. But I will say this. I think sometimes the amazing freedoms that we have get brought into the Bible in such a manner that we don't understand a sovereign. And a sovereign is simply one who rules and reigns over us. That would be a king or a queen whose word is final, is authoritative. And the reason I think sometimes is that we want to kick against the goats. We want to resist against God sometimes because why? We do have rights and we do have freedoms and we should enjoy those rights and freedoms. But I think sometimes it then fleshes itself in our relationship with God and then we're the one accusing God. God, how could you? Be careful. Be careful. Because now we are trying to place ourselves in a throne that's only designed for him. Let's be careful how we, we say things. And so here, God's the one who's pursuing us. God's the one who's seeking us. And as you see this, this free gift of, of grace given to us all throughout, right? This us a sinner, not in our own work and own merit, but God is the one who pursues us, forgives us, pardons us, restores us, accepts us because of his great love. Romans three speaks of this verses 21 and following, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption of their buying back that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or an appeasement by or an atonement by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What do we see there? And we're sinners. Jews who were given the law are sinners. And the Gentiles who were not given the law are sinners. And the Jews are justified by grace through faith, just as the Gentiles are justified by grace through faith. All hopeless and helpless apart from God pursuing us and sending us his son. It's so important for us to see this. You see it again in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 9. I love, I try to read Ephesians 2 as often as I can because it shares with us who we are before we came to faith in Christ and who we are after coming to faith in Christ and who is the one doing the work. Listen to this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So what could we do? What do dead people do? Nothing. Right? You see dead people singing? No. See dead people walking? You think, well... It's a guy who was raised from the dead. Well, he's not dead anymore, right? Dead people do not respond. And this is what God's saying. Spiritually, we would not respond to God. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So any dead fish can float downstream. That's the picture of us. Whatever society tells us to do, we don't really rock the boat. We just, because any dead fish floats downstream. According, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. So what does the Bible, how does it describe us? We're dead. We're, we're, we walk in trespasses and sins. We follow the course of this world. We uh, obey and follow the prince of the power of the air. We follow Satan. We're sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. What's the very picture of us in Ephesians Two, one through three. Is that a pleasant picture for us? Not at all. It's not a pleasant picture for us. But then one of the two, my two favorite words side by side in all of scripture, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace uh, I'm sorry, uh, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us, uh, uh, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why did God do that? Purposeful calls there in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is a free gift. It's a free and gracious gift that God declares sinners righteous because of His work on our behalf. So there's nothing that you or I can boast about. This is the picture of justification, right? A legal term where God declares those who were... Uh, declare, or God, the just judge, declared an accused person not guilty, and He declares us innocent and righteous. And so this is the picture of what God is doing. The last point there in the definition of justification. God accomplishes this work of grace through faith in the atoning work of Christ on the cross to make payment for sin and appease his just wrath 
toward sin. Right? So, as you saw before in Ephesians chapter 2, it just said that in that passage that we were by nature children of wrath. Why would it say a word like that, that we are children of wrath? Because God hates sin. And so if God hates sin, and we are walking in the nature of sin, walking in accordance to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, we're doing all those things that the Bible says, sons of disobedience, we're by nature gratifying our own flesh, doing everything that's resistant toward God, and, and demonstrating treason before God. God hates not only the sin, catch this, but the sinner. We hear this statement all the time. God loves, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Now that's true in a sense. I don't want to, don't get me wrong. That's true in a sense, but that's not true completely as if I'm separated from my sin. You only see sin and the context that being fleshed out in the life of a sinner. Correct. Otherwise it's simply ethereal. I guess potentially a person could sin even though I've never actually seen them sin. Well, no, we see sin because it's carried out in the life of a sinner. Right? Is that correct? Track with me. So if that's the case, I'm a sinner by nature and I'm a sinner by action. Right? And so if I die apart from being declared righteous before God, God hates the sin and God hates me, the sinner. Because that sin is not out apart from me in some other place. That sin is me. I'm the sinner carrying out the sin. You tracking with me? So I love those statements. And in an essence, in certain ways, they are true. But let me share it to you a better way. God hates the sin and God loves the saint. How do we become a saint? Good question. It's a term called justification. Let me talk to you about it. Because guess what? God hates sin and God hates sinners. If you remain a sinner, God hates you. But what do we know about the Bible? What does it call sinners who repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in Jesus? Saints. So let's be more, how about we be more clear with our definitions? God hates the sin, but God loves the saint. Well, didn't you just say all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God? Yes, so all are sinners. Yes. But all, all do not have to stay sinners. Some can become saints. Well, then the question should be, how do you become a saint? And that's exactly what we're dis- discussing this morning. That God accomplished this work of grace through faith and the atoning work of Christ on the cross to make payment for sin and appease his just wrath toward sin. Now, what's the big deal about God's hatred toward sin? It's that God must punish sin. He must punish sin. And God will not allow sin to go unpunished. You see that? It's in your notes there. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 5. Listen to this. Listen to this proverb. It's so good. And it's a, it's a problem or a dilemma that we'd have if it weren't for the wisdom of God that's above man. Right? So listen to Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He who justifies the wicked. So he's the one who declares the wicked just or righteous. And he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So it's what Romans says that you call evil good and good evil. Is that not what we do? Woman who destroys her own child in the womb. And let me just tell you, who's the one who authors life in the womb? I believe the Bible says God's the one who opens and closes the womb. That's, that's an area where he's at work, 
Not we are at work. It's not just chemical processes taking place. God is the one who is knitting the child in the womb. And we declare it our independence, our autonomy. I can do whatever I want to, to my body. And we kill babies. And we declare it righteous. We justify it. Now I want to be cautious because that might be anyone in this room's testimony prior to salvation. Or maybe you've slipped in here and you're not a born again believer. And that's your current testimony. So lovingly as I can say, may I communicate to you that is sin. That is murder. And God hates it. But let me encourage you this morning. There are a host of murderers that are now saints. Moses, the greatest prophets, the Old Testament, was a murderer. And then he encountered God, who changed his life. Paul, who was writing this letter that we're reading currently to the churches of Galatia, was a murderer. And God radically changed his life. And the Bible says, ultimately, there's a certain number of people who... Certain types of people who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And listen to this marvelous statement that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But such were some of you. Such were some of you. We don't have to be sinners. We can be saints. But the question then becomes, well, how do we do that? Is that, isn't, If this passage is accurate in Proverbs 17, is God then justifying the wicked? He says he, it's an abomination to him. Is he justifying the wicked? Well, no, because ultimately what that's saying is that it's declaring the wicked righteous and it's declaring the righteous wicked. But God doesn't do that. God does make payment for sin. And this is when we're out sharing the gospel and we're declaring someone righteous or the Bible would declare someone righteous or not. And we're trying to aid somebody in sharing the gospel. We need to make sure we are speaking biblical terms. For example... When we're out in college campuses or a variety of other places and we're sharing the gospel with individuals, we'll begin to share with them what the law says. And they, are they lawbreakers? Are they keeping the law? And we just begin to even walk through the Ten Commandments, for example, and begin to share with them their need for a Savior. And they begin, man, I'm, I'm an idolater. And I'm, a, um, I'm an adulterer. And I'm a murderer. I'm a liar. And we just look through three or four of the Ten Commandments and they begin to realize and begin to show themselves before this mirror of God's standard, His righteousness, which is perfection. Moral excellence. And the Bible said, man, many man proclaims his own goodness. And so you begin asking anybody, are you a good person? Everybody says, yes, I'm a pretty good person. Because they're comparing themselves to the most heinous person on the face of the planet who has ever lived. But you compare yourself against God, all of a sudden you realize, I'm not that good of a person. And so then I begin to say, well, if God would hold you accountable to these Ten Commandments, would you be interested or guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments? And they would say, I would be guilty. And I say, well, God, that's God's standard to get into heaven. Do you think you would go to heaven or go to hell? Since you've already admitted that you've broken God's law. It's Ten Commandments. And they said, well, I guess based upon that standard, I would go to hell. And I said, will that concern you? And they say, no. And I said, well, why, was that? why wouldn't that concern you? And they say, because God is a forgiving God. And so then I will read them, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 5. So what you're telling me is that God will not hold you accountable to your sin. And they say, no, no. I, God, God loves me and he'll forgive me. And I said, well... So the basis of you being forgiven is God's love. And they're like, yes. And I said, but, and then I'll share with them this illustration. Love, which is right and good, has to hate that which is bad or evil. Otherwise, you would have no standard for 
rightness or wrong. You would have no standard for love or wrath. By the very nature of God, if he's loving, he can't love all things because there's the standard of what is absolute truth and and rightness or moral excellence. Let me explain it this way. I've used this illustration numerous times, but bear with me just for in case any of you who are here haven't heard this. If I come home and I see my wife being brutally attacked by a man in my house, if I love my wife, what does it be like, uh, sir, I would ask you that you would probably not do that, right? Or better yet, I mean, I love him. I don't, want to, I don't want him to feel like I'm condemning him or something. So, man, just proceed, brother, right? That wouldn't be loving toward my wife or my children. But because I know what is right, what the Bible says is the standard in God's eyes. And that God loves us enough to give us that standard, to protect us from ourselves, to protect us from sin. And he has a love toward things that are good. Then by the sheer definition of love, I have to hate that which isn't loving. And wrath will pour out of me as a husband who loves my wife, who would then, I can't imagine what I would do. It would not be pretty, right? And it's because there would be a natural righteous indignation for that which is evil. And so I will tell them, because God is loving and because God is just, God hates sin. And so by the definition you're giving me that God's loving, that's why he will spare you. I'll give you the same definition, so that's why he must, he must destroy you. Or not annihilation in a sense, but he will eternally punish you in a place called hell. And I'll give them an illustration. Because we long for justice, do we not? We hate militant bombers who blow themselves up. Because why? There's no, here on earth, there's no means for them to be held accountable. The reality is, vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. That, that life that was taken, or that was given for horrible purposes, to create destruction and harm all throughout this world, will stand before his or her creator and maker, sustainer of life, and will answer for every deed they've done. So the person says, well, and, and what hope is there for me? And I said, well, that's great. I'm glad you asked that. And I, then I begin to share Jesus with them. And they're like, oh, okay. Whew, you had me nervous a little bit. I, I thought there was something. But I've done that. I, I got that Jesus thing a while back. I asked him into my heart. I walked and I signed a card. I, I was baptized. I've got that. And here's what they do not understand. They do not understand justification. They don't understand it. Let me go back to my original question that I started, and I'll help illustrate this for us. I will then ask that person the statement I started our conversation with. Okay, just to make sure I'm understanding you, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I allow you into heaven, how would you answer? Because I want to say maybe... They, don't, they can't articulate very well. I want to see if they understand the gospel. Because if you don't understand justification, you are not saved. Now, it seems like it's a really hard term. but You might understand the word, but you need to understand the concept that the word describes. Okay? Track with me. It's really important. Don't check out. And if you're here and you're like, I get this, I get this. Utilize the teaching that you're receiving now to help you communicate clear to those that you will be talking to. Right? So don't just be like, oh, I'm good. I know this. Make sure if there's any way you can be sharpened in your communication to others, may God help us so that we can help others to understand justification. All right? So this isn't just about you. It's about others as well. And so if this is the case, then that question I ask them is so important. 
And let me share this with you. If your answer to that question begins with I, you're in really, really shaky ground. Now think about that. Let me ask it to you and I want you to think of an answer. I'm not going to ask you to give it verbally, but think of an answer. If you were to stand before God at this very moment and he says, why shall I you know my heaven? How would you answer? And let me tell you right up front. If your answer begins with I, you're in a really dangerous place. How are we doing? All right, so here's the answer. I were asked that question, here's the answer. He shouldn't. Why should God allow you into heaven? He shouldn't. He should not. But I will go to heaven. And why will he allow me into heaven? Because of the gracious work of Christ on my behalf on the cross. And his spirit to open my eyes and show me my need for him. That I could then by faith look at his gracious work on my behalf. And then as a result of that, I turn from my sins and place my faith and trust in Jesus. Where was the vast majority of the work? Christ. Christ. He shouldn't let me in. There's no reason he should let me in. I'm a guilty sinner. I deserve to be punished. But I'm not going there, and it's not because of anything I've done. That's why I'm not going to start with, well, I did this. No, he did this for me. You tracking with me? That's why we need to be very, very cautious, very, very careful, because works-based religion starts coming in there, and then we start saying, well, I I did this, and I did this. I I can boast of no righteousness. I'm like Mephibosheth. When when David became king, and he started saying, who may I, I made a covenant with Jonathan, and I want to see if there's anyone in Saul's household I can just demonstrate God's grace because of the covenant I made with Jonathan. So go, go research and find it. Go seek all the land. And they found this descendant of, of David, or descendant of Saul, with lame legs, broken, busted, an enemy of the king. And he says, go find him. And they said, hey, there's this, this young man named Mephibosheth. We found him. He's descendant of Saul. And he said, oh, bring him to me. Now, imagine being Mephibosheth. He can't run. His legs are all broken. They bring him before him. And I can't, I don't know what might happen. Is they, are they holding him up or is he in a chair? But I can just imagine that he's, he wants to stand before the king, to humble himself before the king. And so if he's in a chair, he's having to like, crippled, trying to get out of a chair and, and be able to get on, on before the king. And he's just laying there prostrate for a king that can, can slaughter him, a sovereign who has all control, who can say, off with his head. And then guess what happened? There goes his head. And the king says, you are pardoned. You are not my enemy. Why? Something Mephibosheth did? No, everything in about his nature and his heritage was wrong and, and, and was an enemy. But just because the king was gracious and made a covenant. And this is what the picture is. God is gracious and made a covenant. Promised a sinful man that he was going to make payment for sin. And so to answer the question, why should God allow you into heaven? Here's the key. Here's the key. And we're going to fly through the rest of this. This is why we need to understand justification up front. The key is, why should God allow you into heaven? Your first response should be, he should not allow me into heaven. 
but God, who is rich in mercy and loving kindness, demonstrated his love to me that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. What works do you see there? I did this. I did that. Nothing. Christ did it all. Tracking with me? It's a beautiful picture here. And so this is, I'm not going to take all the time to read those, but those are the verses. You can look those up. Those are beautiful verses of God's, uh, Christ's atoning work for us on the cross. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, beautiful passage. Romans 5, us being at, at peace with God as a result of that. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, all declares the legal declaring sinners righteous before God. And therefore, Proverbs 17, 15 is not an abomination to God because why? Going back to that college student who said, well, God loves me and he, he forgives me because he loves me. Nope, he forgives you on the basis of God's wrath being poured out against sin on the cross, which his son received, right? That's the only basis we get in. Otherwise, the cross makes no sense. Makes no sense. Then what was happening on the cross? God was making payment for sin. And so we need, we need, we need, we need, we need, we need to make sure when we talk to people, they understand this point. Because in our cultural Christianity, and I say that loosely, normative Southern Baptist life where we show up on church on Sunday, we don't define things well, and as a result, people are walking around thinking they're saved, and they are not because they don't know why their sins have been forgiven. If God doesn't punish sin, then we still are in it. We still are in our sin. But if God's made payment for sin, then now we've got to make sure that we are in Christ. That's our only shelter. Get the picture of Moses in the ark. Only those in the ark were spared of God's wrath. And that wrath will happen to us again. And only those who are in Christ have entered in the door the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Tracking with me? Helpful? Hopefully it's helpful for us. All right, so that's the definition of uh, justification. Now let's look at clarification of how someone is now justified before God. How does this happen to us? And so Paul's using the argument as he's addressing Peter's sinfulness, right? So Peter is a born-again believer, but Peter had been walking as a hypocrite as a result of the circumcision party, the Judaizers who have come into town there at Antioch. Antioch's a Gentile church, predominantly made up of Gentiles. Barnabas is not a Gentile. Paul is not a Gentile. Uh, they were two of the pastors there, at, uh, two of the five elders there. This uh, Acts chapter 13 tells us. And so in this, Paul, Peter comes in, starts acting. He's eating with the Gentiles. Everything's fine with eating with the Gentiles. You understand it's not a sin to eat with the Gentiles. But then the circumcision party shows up, and he begins to slowly withdraw, begins to back away from them. And as a result of that, the others begin to pick up on this hypocrisy, and the other Jews begin to act the same way. Even Barnabas, the pastor, begins to take on this. And what can happen is you're going to have a, a split of a church if something's not done. And so then Paul addresses it and confronts that and begins to confront Peter in this. And so then he continues the argument by saying in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, let me make a point here. He's not saying Jews are not sinners. He's simply saying Jews know the law of God and are attempting to keep it, and in their attempts to keep it aren't sinners in a sense. Whereas the, Jew, the Gentiles who don't have the law clearly are disobeying God because why? They don't even have the law to know how to obey God. You're tracking with me? So he's not saying Jews somehow aren't sinners. And Gentiles are, both are sinners. He's simply saying one can't even astri- a, a, a strive to achieve the law even by faith. 
keeping the law by faith as Abraham had done because they didn't even give the words to know what that law was, right? And so this is the picture. So we, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know, the ones who are given the law, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he's saying, he made the argument, going back to verse 14, he said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Meaning, if you've eaten with them and not eaten food that was kosher and followed all the dietary laws and washed your hands, the traditions of the elders and all those things, and you've, you've not done that, you've lived like a Gentile who didn't have those laws and rules. If you, a Jew, live like a Gentile the way they do, how can you now, when the Judaizers show up, start trying to tell these Jews they need to live like you? That's hypocrisy. And then he goes to the argument, we ourselves are Jews by birth. And these Gentiles don't know the truth. They don't have the law. But we ourselves, you know, we ourselves know that a person's not justified by the works of the law. So why are we trying to encourage them to follow the law? Three times in this passage, you see him repeating again and again and again, justification by faith through grace. Look at this. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's on all. I love this broken down. MacArthur gives this. It's so beautiful. That's just in a general sense. We know. Paul, you know, I know. Together, we know. We have the same theology. We know. Yet we, you and I, Paul, we know this. I mean, you and I, Peter, we know this. That a person's not justified by works of the law through faith in, in Jesus Christ. This is a general statement. I mean, we know this about all things. And that person's not justified by that. But he's going to make it personal. So we also, us Jews, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So there you see it again. We know that in a general sense, not justification by works. Now in a personal sense, we know that we believed in Christ Jesus in order to be, uh, in order to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And now in a universal sense, the last portion there, because by works of the law, no one, universally it applies to all, no one will be justified. Three times, he says it in three different ways. Listen, it is not by keeping the law. The law simply there, as Galatians chapter 3 will teach us in the coming weeks, is simply a schoolmaster or a tutor to show us our need for Christ. See this beautiful instruction for us. Meaning, let me help you with this. You don't have to be baptized eight times in order for God to declare you righteous. You would never have to step into the doors of a church ever for God to declare you righteous. You have to recite some magical prayer or sign some card or join some denomination for God to declare you righteous. Because why? Why should God allow you into heaven? He shouldn't. He shouldn't. But God, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. Made us alive in Christ. So let's clarify this. How Clarification of how someone is justified before God. Number one, not based upon heritage. That's what verse 15 says. We ourselves are Jews by nature, not Gentile sinners. Yet verse 16 says, we know that a person not justified by works of the law, those who would know uh, how to have faith in Christ through the, uh, uh, as a result of looking to the Messiah. He says, we know the person not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not by heritage, Jews or Gentiles. The Bible says it's not about you being a Jew or Gentile. It's about faith in Christ. Number two, it's not based upon obedience. Obeying the works of the law. It's what it goes again. Yet we know that a person's not justified by works of the law, obedience to the works of the law. Because why? None of us can keep the laws perfectly. Right? 
That's why the Bible says that God gave us the law to show us that we needed a sinner. Romans chapter 3 says, and listen to this one statement. It's so beautiful. You want to say, well, then why did God give the law, Pastor? Listen to this. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 3, 19 and 20. Listen. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So what's the purpose of the law? So that, purposeful clause, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So when you talk to a person, just ask them. You want to get in a conversation about spiritual things? Just ask somebody, hey, do you consider yourself to be a pretty good person? And the Bible says this. Man, every man will declare his own righteousness. And here's the almost, I I rarely get a non-affirmative. Yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. And a simple question, how do you you measure that? Like, what are you basing that on? And you're going to hear a whole bunch of things. And so I base it upon the Bible. And how the Bible declares us whether we're righteous or not. And then begin to walk them through. And then just take them through the Ten Commandments. Ever looked at a woman with lust? The Bible says, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, you're an adulterer. Ever had anger, anger or hatred in your heart toward a person? The Bible says you're a murderer. You'll never commit adultery, right? If you don't have the first the thought and desire to commit adultery. You don't have murder if you don't have first anger and hatred in your heart for your brother. You ever told a lie, even one? You're a liar. Just begin to walk through the scriptures with them. And then you begin to show them and share with them what this, the Bible says. Because why? We can't keep the law. And the, the purpose of the law was to shut our mouths so we won't proclaim our own righteousness, but to condemn us as sinners that is in need of a Savior. And so it's not based upon heritage, it's not based upon obedience, and it's not based upon works of the law, which is what this whole passage is about. So how is someone saved? Two, two parts. Number one, it's based upon the grace of God, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died to demonstrate grace to sinners who did not deserve to be saved. The grace of God. And it's based upon faith and the Son of God. Verse 16 and verse 20. Yet we know that, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified works of the law, but through faith... In Jesus Christ, faith in the finished work that Jesus Christ did die for sins. And God was pleased and appeased by his sacrifice by raising him from the dead through the resurrection. And in verse 20 again, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so clarification is not based upon our heritage or obedience or works of the law, but by upon grace of God and faith in the Son of God. That's how a person is declared Righteous for clarification. That's how a person's declared righteous. So let me just walk you through this. All right? As it relates to a person being allowed into heaven, God is not more happy with you this week because you read your Bible every day than if you didn't read it at all. If you didn't pray at all this week. Now, can it hinder your sanctification, right? The power of sin in your life? Sure. But he's not more pleased with you because you read the Bible more. Now, should you read the Bible? Absolutely. Should you join the gathering and be a part of a gathering? Absolutely. But as far as you being declared righteous, let's be careful that legalism doesn't slip in. And all of a sudden you're like, God hates me today. And you walk around mopey like Eeyore, right? 
Because why? All of a sudden you think God hates you because you didn't read your Bible all week. You should read your Bible because you love him. But not somehow he's going to look at you with more favor. Careful, careful, careful. Or we would be slipping into legalism. And I'm chief of sinners. All right? So definition of justification, clarification of how someone is justified before God. And then lastly, let's look at explanation of justification at work at work in the life of Paul. How did, how did he begin to explain how this is transpiring in his life, this work of justification? Number one, Paul stated that if righteousness is by works, so if we're declared just or righteous, we're justified before God by our works, then our freedom and liberty in Christ would make Christ a servant of sin. You tracking with me? It's good. Now, going back to the argument that he had just made. How then, Peter, if you live like a Gentile, you're a Jew and you live like a Gentile, now ask Gentiles to live like Jews. He's saying, listen, you understand there's no... It's not about works of the law that you're, you're being declared righteous for God. And so if you're not being declared righteous for God because of works, then it doesn't matter what you eat. But I mean, all these guys are all upset. They won't need your body to be cut in a certain way as far as the circumcision and, and how the foreskin's cut off and on the eighth day. And so that would give you righteousness before God. And you don't need to eat with sinners because they're, they're pagans and they're, God hates them. And it's like, well, no, no, no. Let's be careful here. Because if that's true, he says it in verse um, uh, 17 here. Look what he says. But if... And our endeavor to be justified in Christ, right? So we're not looking to works of the law. We're justified in Christ. We too were found to be sinners, meaning we ate with Gentiles. Then is Christ a servant of sin? Because he's the one who told us it's okay to eat with Gentiles. That's the argument. So the same argument for us. Paul stated that if righteousness is by works, our freedom and liberty in Christ would make us a servant of sin. And he says, God forbid, or certainly not. Now, here's the, here's the key. You'll be around some, and let me just, I'm going to name some people to help you, right? You're going to be with Mormon church, and they're going to say, you may, and you need to be baptized by the priesthood of Melchizedek. There's a certain priesthood, and you need to be baptized by them. If you're not baptized by them, I'm not sure you'll be getting in, or you might not get to one of the upper tier levels of heaven. You know what that is? Legalism. Legalism. Church of Christ. You start talking to Church of Christ members, here's what they'll tell you. Man, brother, it's essential that you're baptized. And I have to wrestle with them. Man, can, you, can somebody in the Church of Christ declare to me what it means essential? Because I'll try to press you on it, and then you keep changing the definition on me. Here's what they mean. You're not baptized, you're not saved. Because they believe in baptismal regeneration, meaning the new birth happens through the instrument of baptism. Not biblical. Heresy. We've got to be cautious because it slips in. And so what I'm telling them, so what you're telling me then is I'm a servant of sin because I'm living in sin if a person dies apart from baptism. Now, I believe they should. I don't know of any believer, any believer that physically capable dies apart from being baptized because they should want to. But let me also very clearly state they don't have to in order to be justified because there's no works of the law. No work man's righteousness will allow them to earn or merit salvation. Tracking? Tracking with me? All right, good. So number one, verse 17, Paul stated, If righteousness is by works, our freedom and liberty in Christ will make us a servant of sin. Number two, Paul knew that to teach righteousness that is based upon works of the law is actually sin. Quite the contrary. What they're perpetrating uh, was exactly sin. They're adding to the grace of God, which Paul said earlier, Man, if they preach a different gospel, you just contrary to the one we preach to you, let them be devoted to destruction. Let them be accursed. They're the ones sinning and they're calling us sinners. You see that in verse 18. For if I rebuild, Paul's saying, what I tore down, what did he tear down? Works righteousness. 
He's who said in his own testimony in chapter 1 that, man, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age so that I was so extremely zealous I was, I was offered the traditions of my fathers that he even went around killing Christians. He says, man, I tore all that down. Philippians, he says, man, I considered all that righteousness as rubbish. It's nothing. It's refuse. Nothing. It wasn't amount to anything. And so Paul said in that, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I'm breaking the law of liberty. God's granted us freedom. You know the truth? The truth will, the truth will set you free. And he says, man, I'm actually a transgressor of that. Number three, Paul's knowledge of the law led to death and new life in Christ. He says, but I'm grateful for the law because it led me to new life in Christ. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So Paul realizes, he says, Paul, uh, Paul's knowledge of the law led to death and new life in Christ. That's why we need to show people the law when we share the gospel to them. It's so that every mouth may be stopped. Romans, Romans chapter 3, as I read to you earlier. And that all men will be held accountable before God with their sins before him. And so, man, he's grateful for the law, but not because it has salvific power, but because it condemns us and, and, and drives us to our knees, like Mephibosheth, that we stand before the king who has every right to condemn us and pray for mercy. Number four, Paul died with Christ, and now Christ lives in Paul. So how does this new birth happen? This justification, has it happened? Paul says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's what that passage says. That now, I was dead in my trespasses, right? So God needs to do something to me. Because a dead person doesn't respond. God needs to do something to me. Or I won't respond because I'm dead. And so what does he do to me? God brings the gospel to us, the power of God unto salvation, and shows us as we begin to see our need for Christ, to see we we're a sinner. The law has shown us how, how God hates sin and sinners, but doesn't leave us in our sin. He's made it away for us in Christ Jesus. And through the glorious gospel, we look and live. Right? It's, what Rome, it's what John chapter 3 is all about. The new birth is all about us looking to Christ and living. That's why it uses Numbers 21 with the pole that was uh, the serpent on the pole that was raised up in, in the book of Numbers, that they were bitten by a snake, were bit, snake bitten, and were going to die due to the curse of that, that curse that was put by God. He says, here's how you were saved. You look and live. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, I'm going to the cross, and the Son of Man will be lifted up, that all who look to the Son of Man may be saved. Look and live. You're seeing salvation right here. Trust in me. It's a beautiful picture. And so as you look and live, man, God opens our eyes and changes our hearts and comes to reside in us. Who is living in Paul? He now has life in himself. And it's Christ now lives in him. How did Paul die? He died with Christ. So in 1 Corinthians 7, it says, If you're married, if you marry another, you'll be committing adultery. But if that first spouse dies, you're free to remarry. And so Paul's saying that same true. I died to the law. The law showed me it had no saving power, and I died to it. I was guilty. The law, that's all it could do was say I was guilty. And so, man, I died to that. I died to death with Christ on the cross. He made payment for my sin. And now he's come to live in me. When God raised him from the dead, and that appeasing sacrifice, that atoning sacrifice, made appeasement for God against wrath towards sin, God, Christ now comes to live in, in me that I might now have life in him. Which number five says, Paul is now a new man who lives by faith in Christ. 
So, yes, he died, but yet he lives because Christ lives in him. And the life I now live in the flesh, I mean living in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so now I have new life. One of my favorite verses of all scripture, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If any man is in Christ, any woman is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. That's the picture. I died with Christ and I've been raised in life. The whole things are passing away and behold, new things are coming. Beautiful picture of the new life in Christ. Next, Paul lives in light of the love of God shown in the work of Christ on the cross. And so what does he live? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so now we have this gratitude because we know our sin. We know our position. We know we're like Mephibosheth. And so we're so grateful that God would spare us and give us grace. People begin to talk about theology and be like, well, um, and they would say, well, um, why did God save this person and not save this person? Here's the wrong question. Why does God save any person? Why does he save any of us? Because you're not righteous. I'm not righteous. Every right to destroy us all. I'm just grateful for the mercy of God. And I want to share that grace, that mercy with all. And I'm not, I'm not the one contingent upon who's getting saved. I'll leave that to the Lord. I'm just going to share the gospel with all. But all were in need of salvation. And so he lives in light of that, that gospel. Two more. Paul understands that any attempt to earn righteousness is not based upon the grace of God. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Here's what he's saying. You think you can earn righteousness, then why did Christ go to the cross? Makes no sense. And yet it sneaks in. Ladies and gentlemen, it sneaks in me. It sneaks in me so fast. Because why? This world, that's all the world says. This world is designed to undermine the gospel. And so that's why we need to be in the Bible so much. That's why I try to stay close to the Bible as I can. I know someone say, I wish you would tell more stories and be more illustrative. You'd be, you know, you'd help tell other things to help us understand it better. And I could probably do those better. But listen, I don't want you hearing all kinds of stories about me. I want you to know what the Bible says. Why? Because that's what sets you free. And if we're not careful, we, we begin to allow things to slide in that we hear, oh, that's a great illustration. I want to use that. Let the Bible illustrate the Bible. That's why I want to use Mephibosheth as the illustration and not some cool illustration about me or somebody I ran across. Why? Because Mephibosheth is an Old Testament picture of every sinner like you and I. And David is a picture of Christ, not us. So when you read and you read Max Lucado or anybody else and they're like, face the giants, kill the giants. We're not David. David is a king. Are you a king? Am I a king? Neither. Who's the king? Jesus. So when you read the Bible, the Old Testament, just to help you with hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible, you read the kings, it's either a picture of God or it's not a picture of God. It's not a picture of you. So don't be out going around looking in your yard for five smooth stones to go take down your bosses and your neighbors and your coworkers, right? Because I'm going to take down these giants. No, you know who you are in that passage? You're King Saul and all the children of Israel quaking in your boots, not knowing what to do. And the Messiah steps up and he's the one who takes down the giants and we trust in the Messiah. That's the right interpretation of David and Goliath. Not you. Was David a real man? Yes, but he was a picture of the Christ to come. And so all of our righteousness is fulfilled in the true king, King Jesus. Don't buy those books to tell you stupid things. Right? Did you say stupid from the pulpit? Yes, because certain things are stupid. And that's not true. Right? And in essence, can God give you victory over things in your life? 
Absolutely. And so in an essence, it's true. But the major purpose isn't that you are David. It's a slight soapbox there. Sorry. All right. Last point. Paul states that to attempt to merit our own righteousness denies the purpose of the atonement. What a slander to the grace of God. You're saying you make Christ's death of no purpose to the Church of Christ member who says we have to be baptized in order to be saved. You make the death of Christ of no avail. It makes no sense. Those who need to be baptized in the order and priesthood of Melchizedek. What? Christ died and our righteousness is only found in him. Not in anything I do. Now, yes, Ephesians 2 that I did not read, verse 10. God prepared for us before the foundations of the world good works that we may walk in them. But you will never walk in them until Christ lives within you. And the, 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 life, the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved you and gave himself for you. Christ will be the one who is working through you, not you yourself. And that's the righteousness that comes to us. And so when we say any other attempt, we're saying, Christ, your death didn't matter. My works matter. And it can slip into our walk so quick in a variety of ways. And so I want you to answer the question for me. Just the beginning part of the question. If God were to look at us and say, why should I allow you into my heaven? What should our initial response be? You shouldn't. Now, in closing, let me just say this to give you a little... I get excited and sometimes I say things that probably aren't as clear. We were in Sunday school class and I said, you guys need to hammer this. And Stephen said, can we use a little different word other than hammer this? Because the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, we should gently restore them. And so I don't think that's hammer them, right? So sometimes I can say things that out of emotion that can be interpreted in the wrong way. And I probably could choose my words a little more carefully like our other pastor does. He chooses his words far more clearly carefully than I do. But let me at least communicate and share this. When you're talking with somebody and if they don't give you that answer, he shouldn't. Right? Don't like pounce them and attack them. Right? All you're trying to understand is, are they trusting in Christ for their righteousness? Not in a prayer, not in a baptism, not in a church attendance or a church role or a variety of other things. When at the very deepest understanding, they might not be able to articulate it. Well, I believe in the... the um, the appeasing propitiation of Christ on the cross on behalf of all sinners. Right, they might not give you that kind of a... They might say, well, Christ died for me. Just keep asking questions that will help clarify that. Because why? Everyone knows Christ died for sinners. We're in the South. They get it. But that doesn't mean they've trusted Christ for their salvation. Because they know there's no works in themselves. They can earn righteousness. And so they know the right th- some, some right things to say. You want to press them a little bit. Just making sure... Ask them that question, and then from that question, making sure that they really understand justification. I am declared righteous because of Christ and not of anything I've done. And they've shown me I'm a sinner and that he's redeemed me because he is good and gracious. That make sense? We want, we've got to make sure this is so important because why? If not, we can be trusting in ourselves for righteousness, and then we will be condemned to hell for all of eternity. And I don't want that for any of us, myself included. Let's pray. Father, it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.